Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Rod Phillips, Minister of Finance for the Ontario Government, talks about Ontario reopening. Zoom for the House of Commons. How do you fit that many squares onto a little screen? And a new poll shows that Canadians are divided on whether they will take the new COVID-19 vaccine. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. One of the people who you've often seen speaking and standing over the shoulder of our Premier is Rod Phillips, Minister of Finance for the Ontario Government. He is with us now. Rod, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Scott, I I am, and I, I hope you are too, and thanks for having me today. Uh, I'm sure you are uh, the most question. The question you get asked the most is, when is this all going to end? When is this all going to open up? And I know we are treading on on uh, a new virus here, and we have to be extremely cautious about what we say. But uh, yesterday, obviously, the uh, the premier out, uh, laid out uh, the three stages of uh, of how this works and uh, of recovery and basically said this is not a calendar it's a roadmap uh, but I'm sure you're getting lots of questions today about people wanting to know exact types of businesses and times uh, obviously uh, this is a wait and see approach with the medical officers and such but uh, I guess my first question is when will we get to that first stage and that first stage be enacted do we know it's it's Scott, it's, uh, it's a question, you're right, that everybody's interested in. And, of course, you know, me too. Uh, the Premier has asked me to lead the work around the recovery and reopening the province. And, and I would love to be able to say to your listeners, um, it's going to be a particular date. But as, as he said, and as you, you, you quoted him, this is meant to be the roadmap and really lays out stages, three different stages, uh, which will open up the province gradually. And it's all going to come at the good advice from our science community and from our, our chief medical officer. What we've talked about, we, we wanted people to understand how that decision would get made. And, and there are there are sort of four four broad things that have to we have to see happening. Obviously, we have to see cases starting to come down uh, in terms of, uh, of people, you know, the, the disease, uh, you know, not, uh, not being uh, infecting as many people. Uh, we need to make sure we have health system capacity. So we got to have room in our critical care beds. We got to make sure that we have the proper amount of personal protective equipment. We've done better and better on that. Uh, we have to make sure that we have the public health capacity so that we can track people because there are going to be flare-ups even as we bring the economy online. Um, and we have to make sure that we can we can find uh, people when they have had that, uh, that, that incidence and who's been with them. And then finally, we just need to make sure that we've got the protections around our most vulnerable. So those are all things that we're working on. And and again, the answer the answer is, you know, when when it's safe, we absolutely want to get going, and we'll do that in in stages uh, to make sure that uh, even as we open it up, we do it in a way that that uh, make sure that we don't have a, a flashback to having to shut everything down again, because that would be um, you know that that wouldn't be good for the economy, and it certainly wouldn't be good because that would mean more people were getting sick. Uh, we still know that there is uh, um, not an abundance of testing. I don't want to say a shortage of it. We're certainly testing, uh, we're, uh, from what I understand, what we were setting out to, but still not as much as we need to. Uh, the cases, although we're rounding the curve, uh, we really haven't seen a, a, a great uh, 
um, contraction in the amount of cases. So therefore, we still are a ways away before we're seeing stage one. I mean, can we yeah. at least say that that yeah, we're still yeah. a ways uh, away? Yeah, listen, it's it's not it's not you know if we, if we could have, we would have loved to announce it, uh, but we you know and and we didn't for a reason. Uh, we've talked about this as well. I know there's a lot of stages and phases, and, and for people listening, uh, as you said, they just want to know when can I get back to, to work and, and, and when can I see my friends and family again. But we're still in what we consider the protect and support phase uh, in terms of where it's at as far as we're really trying to make sure that we're providing um, the health protections for people and we're in that, that phase. You know, Next would be a restart phase where we'd start through that stepwise process of opening up gradually, and then we'd be in a recovery phase. So we are still... Um, you know, and, and listen, we are making progress. Uh, it, is, it is going well because people uh, have been doing what was asked and they've been pitching in 14 and a half million people, um, you know, self-isolating and where necessary, uh, physical distancing as required. Um, so every day, I'd like to say, Scott, every day we're getting better in terms of the health response to this, in terms of how we're handling the health issues. We're getting better at the science because we are, we have just so much good work going on around the science, whether it's around antivirals or the eventual work before towards a, a vaccine and we are getting better at understanding how we all have to behave how to run businesses you know we've had the lcbo running as a, an essential service we've been learning from that and other businesses what's working what's not but um but that's a long way of saying uh we aren't at the stage yet where we could give people a definitive date and say this is when we're going to start to open things up because we won't do that till we know we can do it safely uh, we certainly know the, the problems and the challenges around uh, uh, supplies and, and masks and gowns and personal equipment and such and, and even testing. Um, we're hearing more and more about shortage of supplies. Where are we uh, in regard to supplies? Do we have enough? And, and the same thing with testing. I mean, will we need more testing before we, we get to these stages? Well, I'll start with testing because uh, I have an interesting story about, about the, how, the, how the whole personal protective equipment discussion has evolved. But but I'll tell you, the testing, there's two things happening. We, we are testing over 12,000 now on target for what we said in terms of 14,000 uh, tests a day. And those tests are now being deployed with a strategy that's focusing on the most vulnerable, whether that's those in our long-term care care homes or other congregate settings, which of course makes sense. Um, so the testing is coming, but the, but the interesting part about the testing is we have to understand the tests are also evolving. So we've purchased a number of tests from a great uh, Canadian, uh, what was an early stage company is becoming a big company, Smart Spartan, uh, up in Nepean, who are that test where the, the other tests take days to get results from, that test gives results within an hour. And so we were one of the first customers of that, and those tests are going to start to come online. So testing is going to evolve. There's also a different kind of testing. People will have heard about the tests antibodies or serological testing, which they talk about. Mm-hmm. That's something right now that is available in some places. Uh, Health Canada hasn't approved it yet, and we're pushing hard uh, with the federal government to see that happen. But that lets another type of testing happen where more broadly we can see who has antibodies and who doesn't. And, of course, Health Canada has to, many of the tests that are available, people are saying don't work or give too many false positives. Well, that would be dangerous. So we need to make sure that that testing comes online. That's the testing side. On the personal protective equipment, and I haven't told this story before, Scott, I hope you don't mind, but about four weeks ago, uh, Premier Ford, uh, you know, there had been some frustration around how this, the procurement of this was getting done. And I tell you, um, he just sort of took charge in terms of chairing a meeting, which he chairs every single day um, of the people responsible for this. And there's something, I mean, we all know it when the boss decides he's going to 
focus on something, suddenly things start to get done. And I have to say, I'm not saying it's it's perfect, but I have to say, since since the premier has every day called a phone call where everybody who's involved in procurement, and you know, not because he's making the decisions, but because he wants to make the decisions are being sure they're being made. But he is um, he's put some real momentum into it, and I think you know it has gradually started to get better since then. We're fighting a global fight for this equipment, but you've seen the ramping up of of you know we have Woodbridge now, Ontario company that six weeks ago wasn't producing anything like this and is going to be producing a million masks um, a month. These are these are the kinds of things that we're going to start to see our own suppliers starting to deliver, and I think a better organized system to pull in supplies from other places. But this will be. We- this is a, this is a, this is a marathon, not a sprint. But I got to tell you, the premier put a fire under everybody. Uh, Rod, let me ask you this question: We all know that in some cases, government is large, and it takes a long time to get things done. Many have you know drawn the analogy: it's like turning around the Titanic. Has this made government more nimble? Will this make more uh, a government more nimble? I mean, you know, sp- specifically with the masks, we know what the problem is: there's a shortage of them. Nobody has them. Uh, and, and oddly enough, the, the majority of them are made in China. How, how do we prevent that from happening again? How do we make sure we're, we're nimble enough to adjust to these? I think it's going to be a different world, and quite clearly, nobody, and I include ourselves in it, federal government, uh, or you know, our, everybody, we're thinking about the implications of having, you know, even American supplies cut off, which has happened to us during this, as the supplier. So, so uh, you know, the premier has said, you know, he's never, not not going to happen again, which means we're going to have to look to our own capacity and look differently at what's strategic. You know, there's there's also uh, part of this uh, issue that the testing has been what they call the reagent, which is part something that's needed to have the test complete swabs so 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 i think fundamentally uh, both throughout this because we're developing the capacity on the other side we're going to have to look at is it worth it to save a penny or two on a swab or do we want to make sure that we have that locally in terms of government you know our, our public servants i mean they, they work so hard the ones working around the clock i mean not just in the health sector we always talk about that but others to try to make this stuff work but quite clearly there's there's kind of government time um i'll call it this regular time and then there's pandemic time and in the time of an emergency everybody has to look seriously at how we do things to get them done quickly and that's uh that's you know it'd be nice to think that some of that could follow through to being on the other side of this in terms of being more efficient and effective i i I think it will but right now it's just about everybody getting done what they have to get done you know local governments uh federal provincial i mean i think everybody agrees that it's good everybody's put the politics aside and just getting the job done but it's also about a government that can face an emergency because that's you know that's what this is uh, we've certainly uh, seen uh, the attention put on personal uh, care workers and, and frontline health care workers and such, and there has been adjustments in pay made. Uh, paramedics speaking out today that uh, they felt uh, slighted that they didn't get the $4 raise, I guess, that the rest got. Your thoughts, any sort of uh, statement on that at all? Listen, I, I, I think there will be uh, there'll be something to follow, but uh, paramedics, uh, respiratory therapists, I think I think when we're making these decisions quickly as we need to, um, we also have to listen. Uh, and I mean, nobody for a second would deny that our paramedics are vital parts of the of the system that makes uh, that makes this work. Uh, you know, they're they're not given a choice when they've got to help somebody. You know, in terms of personal distancing, you know, if, if you if you're a mom or you or need help on a gurney, they don't ask the question; they just help you up. And so uh, so we've we've heard from them, and uh, and I, and and there'll be news to follow. But I think I think people have been very. Uh, sympathetic that you know we're all trying to do our best and that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes um, and if we miss something we'll try and go back and fix it 
Uh, one other thing before we let you go, because we know you're extremely busy, uh, and thank you for the time here, but we certainly know what has been happening in long-term and, and nursing homes and, and such, and, and those numbers are a lot greater than those in the average population. Is there any way to separate those so we know uh, what the problem is in those facilities versus what it's like out in, in the world for the average citizen? Is there any way to divide that data? There is, and Scott, that that work's being done, and 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 is now available through uh, through the, the the websites that we we provide data on. Um, it's a little less easy to get than we'd like, and and again, that's another area where we're trying to always improve because we think the transparency is important. Quite clearly, uh, for all of us, I and mean, so many of us have uh, a mom or a grandma or a grandpa who are in um, in one of those settings, and so it is a a real source of anxiety, and and there's a very, very significant focus. I can tell you from um, Christine Elliott, from Doug Ford, from all of us around making sure whether it was, as you mentioned, making sure that we're taking care of the pay part of that so that people are are, are being rewarded for it or providing support from our local hospitals uh, into those facilities. Uh, but but um, but it is but it is really two separate worlds right now, which is in one way good news in that the community spread that we were concerned about because of all the efforts of both of our healthcare system, primarily of the 14.5 million Ontarians who've listened about, about physical distancing and about washing their hands and all those good things. Because, because of those efforts, um, the community part of this and the capacity we were worried about being overwhelmed in the, in the hospital system hasn't happened. And that's why that curve is flattening. And, and just like everywhere in the world now, uh, a huge focus is also on, on our, our long-term care facilities and our elderly because they are clearly more vulnerable. So lots of effort going into that and understanding those differences, getting back to reopening the economy and how we do that, understanding those differences is really important because we can, we can, we can protect those long-term care facilities and other congregate living facilities, whether it's shelters or otherwise, in a way um, as we learn about this virus, as we learn how to, to protect people and, and have the opportunity when the time is right, when it's safe to open up the broader economy. Uh, and again, just to sum up here uh, in our last seconds here, uh, the first stage still a ways away. We have to still see a continual drop in the amount of cases and upgrading and uh, of tracking and tracing. Would that be accurate? So what do you want people to take away from the stages and what was said yesterday? There, there is a, there's a framework. Uh, we will announce dates when it when we have clarity on those dates um, but we're making progress the the, the 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 capacity and the tracking that will all be in place what we really need now what we can all contribute to is keep doing what we're doing around the physical distancing keep doing what we're doing around the hygiene and hand washing um, that's what we need to see and the chief medical officers will give us you know they're tracking every day those cases and seeing them coming down um, so if people keep doing what they're doing and thank you very much to everyone for doing that um, then then that is what's going to get us sooner than later to starting to get back to uh to to a new normal and uh it's on all of us to do that uh and, and i think everybody's pitching in which is just great minister of finance rod phillips has been with us government of ontario and of course the press conference coming up in uh, just about a half an hour rod thank you so much for the time and insight much appreciated good luck moving forward be safe thank you scott be safe You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we weave our way through week seven of uh, self-distancing and isolation and such, uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar now with Zoom. Uh, And if you weren't before, you probably are now. Uh, over Easter, we uh, we did a big family thing with a whole pile of people for uh, on Zoom, uh, doing it with friends and such. My wife actually 
uh, belongs to a book club. And they did a, a virtual book club last night, which was kind of bizarre. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and same sort of thing, did it on Zoom. Uh, now, uh, is it is it secure? Is it stable enough to use professionally? I mean, for example, in the House of Commons, uh, with lots of uh, lots of activity in the world around COVID nineteen, uh, many have said Parliament still needs to be in session, still needs to be held to account. How do we do that? Obviously, we can't have everybody coming back now. Virtual sessions are starting today for the government. To talk more about all of this, Dave Masson is with us, Director of Enterprise Security, Dark Trace, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, it's a lovely day here. Oh, that, that's good. Where are you? Can you tell us roughly? Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm uh, about 30 miles east of Ottawa. Uh, in the oh, very the nice. It's fantastic. Oh, beautiful. All right. Uh, many of us have become familiar with Zoom. What do we know about Zoom? Who owns it? Where is it from? And is it a secure, is it a secure platform? Uh, okay, so Zoom is a tele- teleconferencing pr- platform where we can have conversations with um, people, lots of people in some occasions, and you can actually see their faces at the same time. It's, if you like, it's a substitute for actually meeting somebody in the flesh and, and having a conversation with a group of people. Um, it's owned by a private company. Um, and it's produced a product pretty quickly, and it's it's gone from being used by a few million people to quite literally hundreds of millions of people uh, almost overnight. I noticed on the news there, they said it was uh, seven weeks of lockdown, and it, the numbers using Zoom, and not just Zoom, there are lots of other um, teleconferencing um, products out there and applications, they just absolutely rocketed. Uh, your question about, is it secure? Well, it's secure for the kind of conversation that you and I are having right now. Um, secure for any stuff that's to do with real security or secrets or anything like that. No, it's not secure for that at all. And I understand that with uh, the House of Commons in Parliament, they're using Zoom, but it's a different level of Zoom. Is there anything you can tell us about that? A different level of Zoom. Well, obviously, there was a bit of an outcry a few weeks ago. I think it was actually following the appearance of the the British government's cabinet on Zoom. (laughs) Um, that led to a bit of an outcry and then people discovering, and I think it was a, um, I think it was the, uh, it was an organisation, oh, the Citizen Lab in uh, Toronto, discovering that the uh, encryption wasn't as good uh, as it could have been. Since then, Zoom have been obviously uh, making great efforts to improve their encryption and the ability to stop um, just about anybody dropping in on your Zoom conversations. Maybe some of your uh, viewers have heard of the ex- uh, expression Zoom bombing that's sort of taken off where complete strangers drop into your Zoom teleconferences and, and spoil it all for everybody. So Zoom have been uh, moving really fast to try and improve this uh, security of the product. Um, but that's the kind of security where you're just keeping ne'er-do-wells and, and weirdos off uh, off your conversation. It's, it's still not going to be the sort of thing where you're going to discuss anything of a classified nature. That, that won't be the case. So how good is this for business or, as in the case of, of politicians, for the House of Commons? Is it secure enough, in your opinion, for all of that? Well, for the House of Commons, let's uh, remember that we've got an open and transparent uh, democracy that we live in. And, you know, uh, we can all visit the House of Commons and watch the, the shouting match that's going on, or we can sit uh, as a, and watch committee meetings taking place. So with that in mind, then, yeah, Zoom's okay for that, because it's very open, it's very transparent, there's nothing, uh, nothing uh, secret going on there at all. Uh, for commercial use of teleconferencing products, uh, that's where you come into, you start talking about what we call risk appetite. 
the amount of risk that you're prepared to take. Um, and for some commercial applications, yes, it will be. Um, but would you, if you've just invented the, uh, I don't know, the cure for COVID-19, would you be discussing it with somebody else on a, a commercial teleconferencing product? No, you probably wouldn't. So uh, are there other forms of this that are more secure that companies or, or anyone who's having uh, sensitive conversations can use? Is there a way to do this safely? Well, for government, there is. Uh, government have had secure teleconferencing facilities for a long, long time now. Uh, I've seen them in action, and they are very safe. You know, they, they're, you know, this is top government-grade security encryption on there run by uh, the likes of our own CSE uh, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, there are uh, some products for uh, commercial organizations um, uh, that do do that, but none of them would none of them would actually reach the kind of level that government could uh, could get their hands on. But they, they, yeah, they do exist. Are you surprised that it has taken uh, the amount of time it has for uh, government to do this? Uh, as you said, it, you know they they have some sort of means of communicating. Uh, with secret information and sensitive information. Um, are, are you surprised that they haven't been able to do this already or they don't have a handle on this? It seems like technology is finally, uh, sorry, society is finally catching up to technology. Well, I think what you're actually seeing is government uh, finally getting itself up to speed with the rest of the population, to be honest with you, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've been all using this stuff <laughs> for ages. I mean, I've literally spent this morning from 8 o'clock up until now on teleconference after teleconference after teleconference. Um, uh, so I think what you've seen is the government going, well, hang on a minute, why don't we do that? Uh, so I think that's more what the issue is there. Are you concerned that, uh, and as you mentioned, you know, just as we could watch this on the parliamentary channels on, on television and such, uh, these are open meetings anyway. So these, th- this, it, with this situation and, and question period or the House of Commons debating, security really isn't an issue here. Is it as much as, as we think it is, as opposed to other top-level discussions? No, for open democratic debate, for which we're famous for in Canada, no, that's it's not an issue at all. Uh, where it might become an issue would be if, um, I, I can't imagine, well, maybe it will happen, you never know, that the Prime Minister is going to start broadcasting uh, the debates he has with, with Cabinet. I don't think we're likely to see that. Right. Um, uh, well, I want to say we're likely to see it. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, if they use an unsecure teleconferencing uh, facility to do that and the bad guys get hold of it, then they'll probably mm. get to see it. Um, but for open democratic debate, no, this isn't a problem, no. Uh, any advice for those of us that may have just discovered these sorts of services, whether they be Zoom or the others uh, that you had talked about? Uh, any advice for us to anything we should think about the average customer, consumer, when getting involved in these sorts of platforms? Yeah, unfortunately, I was actually talking with um, uh, somebody else about this on Friday. Um, the, the real world that we live in, there's good and bad. And unfortunately, in the virtual world that we're all increasingly living in, there's good and bad as well, I'm afraid to say. And uh, some of you, as I said, will have heard the expression Zoom bombing, where people just drop in on uh, teleconferences and basically spoil it for everybody, sometimes with pretty disastrous results, sometimes with pretty disgusting content that they force upon you uh, at that moment. Uh, so to avoid that, uh, whichever one you're using, whether it's Zoom or, or Skype or whatever, um, what you want to make sure is that somebody's in charge of the conference, somebody's going to run it, and then where you can, don't publicly advertise that you're about to have a, a chat group about something. If you're doing it on Facebook, you know, make sure your Facebook um, 
protection set. So you're only telling the people you want to actually be at the conference. So you don't give away how to get into the conference. Um, if you can use a password, that's a great idea. Use a password so that people can only uh, join in uh, who have that password. I've been on a couple of those this morning myself. And something else you might want to do, I think Zoom has a thing called the waiting room. Uh, I've seen that used just recently where you sit in the waiting room and the person who's run the conference just makes sure that you are who you say you are before you actually join in. Hmm. Those are all good ideas. And it's just it's just sort of basic basic stuff that we're just going to have to learn how, how to use in order to have uh, in order to use these products in the way we want to. Dave Mason Amasin has been with us, Director of Enterprise Security, Dark Trace, virtual sessions, uh, virtual sessions beginning at the House of Commons, and just general guidance around using things like Zoom. Dave, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay safe. Stay, stay safe yourself. See you next time. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's starting to figure out what its reopening plan will be. Let's bring in Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. He is with us now. Fred, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. How are you doing? It's doing well, Scott. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a better day than I thought it was going to be. So I, I expected nothing but rain and so far the sunshine. So good news. There you go. What is yeah. the question that you are asked most by citizens during this pandemic? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I mean, there's not a whole lot of, I mean, I'm not getting a whole lot of citizen contact because we're all kind of self-isolating. But, uh, you know, when, when we get phone calls, uh, you know, the most phone calls we got were, and brace yourself for this, what's going on with leaf and yard collection? Uh, was the, <laughs> the most often, uh, often uh, noted call in, that we got into our office. And, you know, probably timely because, you know, the spring was upon us and people are in their gardens. They have to be staying at home. They're collecting all of this material. Why the heck is the city not picking this up? And so we have to explain that initially. And then, you know, Eureka, we were able to uh, figure out a way of collecting uh, leaf and yard. So that I, I, I'm totally, totally honest with you. That was the biggest call volume we received. That's amazing. You know, as much as things change, uh, they stay the same. And I guess, you know, if people are out and about in their yards, there's lots of yard work to be done. So that has all of a sudden become, I guess, a need that much earlier than normally, I guess. Right. And, and it, was, uh, it was perceived to be a kind of a civic decision. And, and for some reasons, in some respects, it was because we, had, we didn't have the manpower because of COVID to be able to collect it on a, a regularized basis. So, you know, people have an expectation that on garbage day, their leafing yard gets picked up. Well, we just didn't have the, uh, the horses, the, the people power to be able to do that. So we have to, rather than have random dates, we have to cancel altogether. And so obviously top of mind for people, uh, clearly they're in your, as you were saying, in their backyards collecting all this material. So, you know, makes, makes sense that they would ask the question, well, when is this going to get restarted? Hopefully, they now are, they're now aware that this week, uh, Lower City and Mountain, put your leaf and yard out uh, Monday, hopefully and people did, and sometime through the week, someone's going to come and collect it. So there's a path, and if people aren't satisfied with that, they can always bring it to the transfer station uh, free. Uh, that's always been the case. But, there's yeah, understandable that people, uh, you know, they're accepting what's happening on the public health side. They're accepting the fact that they need to stay home. They, I think they understand why. Uh, they had some questions around, why, why can't we uh, collect that leaf and yard? Understandable. And there you go. Another example of City Hall being nimble enough to answer to uh, the, the questions of the citizens and react during COVID-19. Kudos to you guys. Yeah. Way, way to go. That's yeah. great. 
So as we talk about this plan to slowly reopen, and again, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the Premier just a- announced the stages yesterday, and already we want to know, well, when does the first stage start? But what is the first thing that the city starts to unwrap here as we slowly start to get back to normal? Well, you know, I, you know, as the Premier pointed out in that kind of three-phased approach, I think phase one really starts to look at some of the public spaces more more often than not, right? Not necessarily business per se, but public spaces that are now closed, the, uh, the conservation authority areas, the trails, the, the waterfront trail, you know, all the places that people want to get at uh, as the weather improves is probably the easiest place to go to, provided that people are still maintaining that physical distancing when they're doing it. So there's going to have to be, uh, you know, a, a good understanding from people that this is not just opening it up and letting every, everything happen the way it used to happen. There's going to have to be, uh, you know, physical separation and phys- physical distancing, protections in place possibly, maybe even uh, masking as, uh, as people go out. They haven't really defined that yet, but that's certainly something that uh, many people are talking about. So that would be the first area that I think would be the easiest place, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Do we have a plan as yet? Uh, no. And uh, one of the, one of the uh, you know, tasks for our kind of economic recovery task force that we're hoping to start setting up tomorrow is really starting to look at uh, the more the business side of things, the employment side of things, and can we uh, you know, provide resources and uh, pathways for people to deal with some of those physical separation issues that all these retail locations and all these businesses are going to have to put into effect. That also is going to require an awful lot of personal protective equipment. How is that resourced? Uh, you know, what is a what is an eye doctor need as opposed to what is a uh, what is a barbershop need? All of those things are going to be very very complicated, and we're going to try and make them simple and try and do as much as we can to standardize them so that we can provide that assistance to businesses so that when we're ready to open, uh, all of that has been thought through, and it's just a matter of getting the supply. And trying to to streamline things so that when businesses are ready to go and they've got the go-ahead from the the province and the public health, that they have uh, processes in place to uh, to actually protect themselves and their customers. And that's going to be very critical going forward. It's not business as usual. It's Slowly and gradually opening up safely, uh, allowing for uh, physical separation, making sure that uh, the, the, the virus can't spread as we do this. And if it does start to spread, then we're probably right back into, uh, you know, a, a, an isolation scenario to uh, prevent it from spreading even further. So it's going to be a probably even a more difficult process coming out of this than it was shutting everything down. Shutting everything down was relatively easy, hard, but relatively easy. To do uh, coming out of this is going to be a lot more complicated and it's going to take a lot more time that was my next question this is obviously going to be more challenging on the way out than it was on the way in uh, clearly uh, uh, supplies medical supplies personal protective equipment and such uh, testing uh, extremely short supply it's obvious that everybody's been caught there do you see mm-hmm. that there there has to be more uh, uh, supplies more ability to test before we get to that first stage I think so. I think uh, supplies for sure, personal protective equipment for, uh, you know, shops, uh, especially, you know, service shops that are, you know, intimately connecting with uh, with customers, hairdressers, hair salons, uh, you know, uh, eye doctors, dentists, uh, you know, all of that stuff is going to require a significant uh, amount more of protective equipment. Uh, the uh, the ability for for them to be able to source that is going to be a challenge. Thermometers. Uh, is going to be, you know, a particularly, uh, you know, important in terms of being able to 
pre-test people as they're coming in to see if there's any indicators of them having a, a virus, which you see happening around the world. Well, those thermometers, those point-and-shoot thermometers are hard to come by. There, there needs to be a much pro, a very proactive effort to get that supply number up. Because when you talk about the supply problems we already have today relative to the medical facilities, when you, when you multiply that times the amount of businesses that are also going to require that, the numbers go up exponentially. And so everyone wearing masks and everyone requiring to have shields and everyone requiring to have those shield separations between customers, uh, all of those things are going to add up to a major supply issue that has to be sorted out before we get too active in terms of uh, opening up businesses even more. So uh, it becomes a really big challenge. And I, and, and I think the challenge nationally is, you know, who, who, and there's a lot of companies stepping up. Uh, you know, I watched uh, 60 Minutes the other day and watched the transformation of Ford that, that isn't making any cars right now, NGM, and quickly transform plants into uh, uh, ventilator productions and uh, shield productions and mass productions and on a massive scale. Hmm. And so that kind of effort has to happen uh, nationally here as well. And uh, we need companies to step up and really start producing this stuff on a massive basis so that uh, those protections can be in place so that when we do open up businesses, uh, that we can, we can at least have the confidence that all the measures are being taken to protect customers and employees and that we can uh, you know, minimize the impact of uh, any cor- cor- coronavirus spread. And if it occurs, that the, the, the health system is prepared to, uh, to isolate and, uh, and contact trace uh, and, and, and be aware of it quickly so that they can get on top of it and, and avoid any spread. So it's going to be complicated, and uh, it's going to require a massive national effort in terms of supply and a very patient public and, uh, and business community to be able to put this into effect as well. This is going to be a slow process. Mayor, City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger has been with us. Mayor Fred, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. uh, We've certainly been talking uh, a lot about vaccination and such. Before we get to that, new modeling out uh, from the prime minister, uh, from the federal government uh, today, again, confirming that we are uh, on the downside of this, that we are uh, uh, rounding the curve per se, uh, but certainly not the time to be letting off the gas. Here's what the prime minister had to say earlier on. The measures we've taken so far are working. In fact, in many parts of the country, the curve has flattened, but we're not out of the woods yet. We're in the middle of the most serious public health emergency Canada has ever seen. And if we lift measures too quickly, we might lose the progress we've made. So we all need to be very careful for ourselves and especially for the most vulnerable, like our parents, grandparents and elders in long-term care facilities. Earlier this month, when we released the first modeling, I said that the path ahead was up to us. And the same holds true today. How many new cases there are, how many losses we have to mourn, whether our hospitals can continue to cope. It's all up to all of us. You've already stepped up to help your family, friends, neighbors, and frontline care workers stay safe. We need common guidelines to make sure that the decisions being taken across the country are grounded in a shared understanding and appreciation of what science and experts are telling us. 
All right, and and again, we've seen the modeling. We've seen that we're on the backside of this curb. People becoming a little too optimistic in the sense that okay, let's open up the doors. But as the mayor of City of Hamilton had said uh, just earlier, uh, the reopening of everything is a lot more complicated than when things were shut down. The backside of this curb is going to be more complicated to manage than the upside of this curb was. Uh, also, lots of chatter about how we will not be uh, completely back to normal until a vaccination is found. That being said, we know that's at least a year away. A new poll shows that Canadians are divided whether a COVID-19 pandemic vaccine should be mandatory. Uh, 60% saying yes, but 40% saying that no, it should it should not be. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, uh, faculty member, human sciences, human and social sciences rather, uh, health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Great to speak to you, Scott. Uh, your first of all, let's talk about the modeling. Uh, your thoughts, uh, obviously, it both from the federal and provincial government. It appears that uh, we are on uh, the backside of this curve. Uh, how do we? I guess how do you convince citizens to be optimistic but cautiously optimistic here? Well, I think that uh, we are, like the prime minister has said, on the right track. Everything we've been putting forward and the messages that have been coming across are clear that our interventions and our collective efforts in trying to get ahead of this pandemic is working. I think people need to be reassured of that. You need to make sure that you know that the effort, the work that you're putting in is actually resulting in something positive. I think there is a sense that most people are getting frustrated with how much longer we can withstand this uh, physical distancing and staying in our homes. And I think that's why the messages of the data modeling is so key to tell us that we must stay on course. We're still on the destination, on the journey to get to our destination. We just have to be a little bit uh, patient with this because the last thing we want is to open things dramatically and to have to go revert back to drastic measures. So the slow and gradual progression towards normal life uh, or some resemblance of what normal life used to be like must be gradual. Let's pretend that uh, we are at least a, a year from now, and the good news is is that there is a vaccination that is available. How do you see that rolling out? And will will this be as much a debate as COVID-19 was uh, when this all initially started? How do you see this rolling out? I think the vaccine brings up this heated ethical debate that we've always continuously had. There's two issues when it comes to vaccines. One, you will always have people uh, that will say that we don't believe in vaccine and their effectiveness, which goes against the science. So uh, the job of public health experts, of all of us who are in the science world and the government world, is to really try to increase the education and the awareness around why are vaccines effective and, and reassure the public of their safety. And I think that's partly the reason why, Scott, we're not saying that the vaccine will be available tomorrow or in eight months. I think that's why everybody's trying to be very realistic with the time frame of when we should be expecting this vaccine to be available to all of us, partly because, because and mainly actually, to ensure the public that they are safe. So running trials and ensuring that the side effects of those vaccines are very rare. That's gonna become extremely key in increasing uh, the number of people that will take the vaccine because the polls have shown today that 60% believe that they are, should be mandatory, but 40% believe that they're not. And almost uh, the, the polls showed that the, only the older and liberal Canadians believe it should be mandatory. So I think it's going to continuously raise the issue about who believes in vaccines and who doesn't and what is our role in increasing the rate of vaccination.
It seems odd because today it's as if the vaccine will be our savior. I mean, all leaders have said things will not get back to normal until this has been eradicated or there's some sort of medical treatment or vaccine. Um, So here we are looking at the vaccine as if it's a savior to get us out of the house. Now it appears once it is available, there will be a great debate as to who's going to take it uh, and, and, and if people will actually buy into this. I think that this is raising a much bigger, more important implication, which is that there is this assumption that we're going to, once the vaccine is available, we're going to go back to life pre-COVID-19. But that's extremely unrealistic right now. I think what we're looking at is that life has changed. And I know it's hard to hear that. And we're all grieving the loss of the life we had pre-COVID-19. But if we go back and remember how it was before 9-11 in the airports and travel, you know, a lot of us who traveled before 9-11 would say now, do you remember how it was like to travel before then? And that's not our reality. We adapted and we got used to what our current reality is. The point I'm trying to make here is that Yes, vaccines are not the only savior. Life has changed and life will continue to change and we will adapt to it. I think going back to normal workplaces will look very differently. There are some innovative workplaces in the U.S. now and across the world who are putting in place measures to allow the six feet distancing, to allow people to work from home more. I think we're going to see more of this sort of a little bit relaxed restrictions, but different measures in place to allow us to exist with or without the vaccine. If, in fact, only, and and I guess there's lots of room to work on this, but if, as it stands right now, only 60% of Canadians actually get the vaccine, is that enough to make it effective? Uh, that's a good question. That's going to take time to determine the herd immunity, is what you're talking about in the scientific world, to figure out how, but what's the percentage we need to ensure that the, the majority of the population is covered and protected. We don't know. As of now, vaccinations in Canada are not mandatory, except in Ontario and New Brunswick, where they are for school-age children. So schools do mandate that kids get uh, vaccinated just, uh, before they are enrolled. Will that change with coronavirus? We don't know yet. The policy is not clear that. I think we're not in that discussion level because we still don't know when this vaccine will actually be available. I think there's also the bigger issue, Scott, is that will we be able to provide the vaccine to our, the majority of the entire population of Canada? Uh, so there's going to be a, an issue or a policy problem when it comes to actually the supply of the vaccine. Uh, are you surprised by these numbers? I'm just reading the notes from Ledger, which is the company that that, that uh, conducted this poll. And a quote from the vice president says, it's almost as if it's, this is seen as just another flu vaccine. Uh, do you think that's how people are looking at this? Is this is just another flu shot? Are they evaluating this as something more severe, more different? I have to be honest with you. I, I'm not quite surprised with those numbers, to be honest, because I think that the, we will continue to have people who believe in the effectiveness of vaccine and others don't. The reason why I'm not surprised with those numbers, Scott, is because I think that if you if you talk to the, the average Canadian out there, they will tell you, you know, I understand COVID-19 is serious, but it hasn't impacted me directly or it hasn't affected one of my family members. And so it's hard for them to see. They understand the severity of it. They're very much aware of it. They're living in it, but they don't see the direct impact to them yet. Uh, will that change? I think time will tell. I think that the more, uh, God forbid, the more numbers of deaths that happen in the country, the more people directly impact them, 
that will change how people view this, the importance of actually getting this vaccine. I think what's actually more interesting from the numbers that came out of the poll is the percentage of people who are comfortable going back uh, to work, comfortable to go to farmer's market. Those numbers are very interesting to me. Why is it that 58% of people are comfortable allowing in-home renovations by contractors, but only 15% of them are interested in going back to the workplaces? What mm. is it about our workplaces that makes people more or less comfortable to go back to, to a normal life as it was? Um, do you think that the vaccine should be sold separately as uh, rather than tied into the flu shot? Like, in other words, here's your typical flu shot for the year. Um, and, and then I guess in, in subsequent years, this may all be in one shot. But because there aren't that many that are taking necessarily the flu shot every year, should this be sold as, no, this is a COVID-19 uh, vaccination? You should be taking this over and above a flu shot. I'll be surprised if this is not uh, marketed and packaged as a COVID-19 vaccine that is separate from the regular flu vaccine. I think that I would be very surprised if the government didn't decide to market it differently. We're also going to, we know every year we have problems with the supply of the regular flu vaccine. So that's, again, going to be a massive issue with COVID-19. Can we domestically produce enough of this vaccine to cover the entire population of Canada? A big question mark. Time will tell on that one. Where do the uh, flu vaccines normally come from? Uh, where will this one come from, do you think? Uh, well, we're noticing, I mean, the prime minister was very telling in his uh, press conference the other day when he said other countries are looking, make, are looking at making sure their own country can produce the vaccine to cover their citizens and that Canada must be part of that conversation. So I do know that uh, here in Canada, we are very much actively working and ensuring that we are the ones uh, domestically producing the vaccine. Massive amount of funds, more than millions and millions of dollars, have been invested into our research capacity and our ability to produce vaccines domestically in Canada, and that will be the trend moving forward. Are you surprised when this whole thing started? Now, obviously, it was, although it started in the latter part of 2019, it certainly wasn't until February, January, February, where uh, the rest of us started to hear of COVID-19. Um, uh, should should we uh, uh, are you surprised rather that during that initial year that we didn't see more of an uptake in the flu shot? Because at that point, many were saying, you know, this the the, the uh, annual flu kills more people than COVID did. Uh, COVID has at that time, and 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 we didn't really see any uptick in the flu shot. Although obviously the flu shot isn't going to be covered by. Uh, isn't going to cover COVID-19, but again, uh, standard influenza still still takes a lot of lives. Are you surprised we didn't see an uptake in the in the normal flu shot as concerns started to rise over COVID-19? Uh, no, I'm not as surprised because I think we go back to the core problem when it comes to the vaccine debate. We need better efforts of translating the effectiveness of vaccine to the public. We don't do as good of a job as we need to in communicating to the general public why are vaccines important? Make that knowledge very simple to understand. Instead of giving the public the statistical figures and significance, people are less bothered by that. They want to be reassured that this vaccine is not going to cause long-term effects. And if we can find a way to actually convey that scientific knowledge in a much simpler, uh, easier to comprehend uh, way, then I believe that we will see a dramatic increase in the number of vaccinations. And we need to get creative in the way we disseminate that knowledge. We're seeing very innovative measures, measures by Public Health Canada and using social media as a way to combat misinformation about vaccines. This is the world we live in today. 
a lot of misinformation, very little scientific evidence that can counter that, that is communicated effectively and simply. And that's why a lot of us are working actively at making sure that we turn that valid and reliable scientific evidence into something that's simple to understand and transmitted across multiple platforms to reach the bigger number of population. On the opposite side of that coin is COVID-19 proving that we should be re-examining vaccines. And, and will this put, will, will this stymie uh, uh, the information from anti-vaxxers? The fact that this has started, the fact that there is a vaccination or hopefully will be a vaccination for this, could this, is this an opportunity to change the discussion about this sort of thing? Absolutely. I think this is a window of opportunity for everybody involved uh, in the, uh, to really push forward this education around why vaccines are important. I think that uh, the debate will continue to happen no matter what. You will always have people that will go against scientific evidence. Uh, we just need to find a way to really ensure the public that vaccines have proven to be safe and that when the COVID-19 vaccine becomes available, why it's safe and how we communicate that is going to be crucial. Uh, do you see this vaccination going to, obviously, um, uh, uh, vulnerable people first, high-risk patients first, like seniors and such, and then making its way uh, to the rest of the population? And, and where do students, where do young people fit into this? That is the biggest ethical question undergoing right now, is that when the vaccine does become available, who gets to have it first? Because realistically, there's no way we will be able to produce enough to go all around right away. Uh, I think there is capacity to do that. And that uh, many different entities who are involved in vaccine development and production are looking at ways to surge how much we can produce in a short time so that we don't really have to invest much energy into this ethical question. But I can, I can foresee it going to vulnerable populations first. Uh, that mean, mean uh, the priority groups area. So our senior citizens, homeless populations, people in long-term care facilities, and then making its way down the list if the question comes there. But yes, Scott, I think that's a question that we're going to have to answer and figure out as we as we move forward in this. And that, that the debate on that one is definitely undergoing and won't be over anytime soon. Uh, last question. Are you concerned that we are uh, spending so much money and putting so much manpower into this vaccine that it will be produced too fast to be safe? Or is it the opposite? There's so much attention paid to this now that it'll be the best vaccine we ever have. Uh, how concerned are you about the speed in which it could be available? I think that crises present a window of opportunity and we can go either way on that window. We can either use that to sort of mobilize the right experts around the table to ensure that the right policy, in this case, the right vaccine is developed in the right time. So I'm not that concerned with the speed. I think that in Canada, we have very strict measures before we would introduce that on a wide scale. I think there are uh, many experts who are looking at the effectiveness in that. And I think that before we are introducing it to our population, we will make sure that it is safe for the public. All right. Joining us has been Dr. Ahmad Khalid, faculty member, human and social sciences, policy advisor, health policy advisor for Wilford, uh, Wilford Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.